Well, the book of Genesis, which is the foundational book of the entire Bible, is a very orderly book. Remember, we saw that last year in our two introduction lessons. It follows a very logical sequence of events. So naturally, in a book about beginnings, which is what the word Genesis means, originally written in Hebrew, but in Greek, the Greek word for beginnings is Genesis, and that's where the title for the book comes from. In a book about beginnings, would you not expect to find out how the universe and life itself began, how it originated? Well, that's exactly what we talked about last year as we looked in particular at the uh, first chapter, which we discussed in Lessons 3 to 11. We found out about God's creation of the universe and all that exists within it. And then in chapter 2, we found additional detail regarding the seven-day creation week. And particularly, we looked at God's unique creation of who? Of man, Adam, and also of his wife, Eve. And then chapter 2 also tells us about the garden into which man was placed and um, the instructions that God very specifically gave to man and woman. We learned about that in Lessons 13 to 15. The third chapter of Genesis then relates to us the tragic account of man's deliberate, willful disobedience to God. It tells us how sin entered into this world and how both man and his world were brought into subjection to corruption and decay and death. That second law of thermodynamics kicked into action, the one we all hate so much because it's what causes our wrinkles and our our hair to uh, turn gray and all that sort of thing. And that we discussed in Lessons 16 to 18. However, the good news of Chapter 13 was, who remembers the verse? Chapter 3, verse what? All right, in Chapter 3, the good news was found in verse 15, that good news. Let's look at that for a minute because some of you weren't here. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. This is the good news that tells us about God's fantastic promise of a coming Redeemer, a Savior who is called the seed of the woman. All right, it says, this is God speaking, and he's talking to the serpent, Satan. All right, he says, and I will put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it, meaning the woman's seed, shall bruise thy head. A bruise to the head is a fatal blow, and thou, Satan, shall bruise only his heel, not a fatal blow. So we learned about the wonderful promise of a Savior who would defeat on behalf of a godly seed of people who would put their trust and faith in him. He would defeat God's age-old enemy, Satan, and his ungodly seed. And for a deeper study, if you were not here with us, on why Lucifer, who became Satan, why Lucifer, who was originally the most beautiful created angel, why he fell, why he was cast from heaven and permitted to enter into the garden and tempt Eve, For that lesson, you would want to see lesson number 16, entitled The Temptation of Man. Now, as we enter now into a look at the next several chapters of Genesis, chapters 4 and 5, we will learn how the descendants of Adam and Eve 
branched into the two predicted sides of the conflict between Christ, the promised Redeemer, boy, you can't see that very well, and who? The conflict between Christ and Satan. All right, from the physical union of Adam and Eve came both an ungodly line of descendants, those will be the seed of the serpent, and also a godly line of descendants. Cain, who was their firstborn son, and all of his offspring, they represent the ungodly line of mankind. And typify, he typifies or he represents, he symbolizes the natural man, the unregenerated man, the unconverted man, the unsaved man, who is, whether he realizes it or not, he is of the seed of the serpent. On the other hand, Abel, who was the second-born son, represents the spiritual man. And, of course, Abel was killed and he was replaced by who? Seth. So Seth and all his descendants, they represent the other side of the conflict. They represent the seed of the woman, the godly line, the spiritual man. So with that introduction, let's look at... Uh, our outline will be looking at verses 1 to 16. We'll talk about four subdivisions, the conceptions, the conflict, the curse, and the consequence. To begin with, let's look at verses 1 and 2, which talk about the conceptions. Eve conceived and had children. So let's look at those verses. The scripture says in verse 1 of chapter 4, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. It was only a matter here, uh, not here, but in chapter 3, of God's undeserved mercy. Remember how we talked about God's wonderful mercy? Where would we ever be without it? It was only a matter of his mercy that Adam and Eve did not die the instant that they sinned. You know, God had every right to punish them with death for their disobedience. He had made it very, very clear to them that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, they would surely die. Remember, he said that in Genesis 2.17. Yet, although they did die spiritually, the moment they partook of that fruit, meaning, you know, their fellowship with God was broken. They died spiritually the minute they ate that forbidden fruit. They did not die physically, did they, that day? They did not die. Of course, their bodies did begin the decaying process, and eventually their bodies would return to the dust of the earth, as God had said in verse 19. Well, also in his mercy, God promised Eve that she would conceive and bring forth children although in great pain. Remember, that was part of her curse. Chapter 3, verse 16. And through that promise, she and Adam learned that they would not die instantly for their disobedience. I mean, if you had heard God say, if you eat that fruit, you're going to surely die, and you ate that fruit, then you would expect that you were going to surely die. But he gave her a promise that she was going to conceive children in pain. So immediately she knew oh, God's mercy, I'm not going to die because I'm going to have children. They also knew that they were not going to die because of the first presentation of the gospel message, which is called the 
by the way, that verse we read, 315, that's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first time the gospel is ever presented in the scripture. They knew because of that promise, God's promise that he would send a redeemer through the very seed of the woman, that they wouldn't die. So even though their lives would never again be perfect, and they would never again live on a perfect world, and uh, they would never again live in a perfect universe, yet, um, and even though they would have to struggle very much to produce their daily bread and to um, provide clothing for themselves and, and to find shelter, yet Adam and Eve would not perish instantly, and they would not perish eternally. That's really the very, very good news, isn't it? God would allow them to live very long lives. They both lived to be somewhere in their 900s. Can you imagine that? Almost a 1,000 years old. And by way of their faith in this coming seed of the woman, this coming Savior, this coming Redeemer who would crush Satan's head, because of their faith in him, they would receive eternal life. So they had assurance, you see, that one day they would be fully returned to a state of perfection and unbroken fellowship with their creator. And that really is good news, isn't it? You know, salvation has always, always, from the very beginning with the very first people ever created, it has always been by faith in the Redeemer, the coming one. From that side of the cross, it was faith that he would come. From our side of the cross, it's faith that he did come. But salvation has always been the same throughout the whole uh, history of mankind. You have to have faith in the coming Redeemer, who we know is Jesus Christ. Now, in Genesis 4.1, we find for the very first time the mention of Adam having sexual relation with his wife. And that's what's understood by the word new. Adam knew Eve, his wife. Remember, God had commanded Adam and Eve by way of a blessing to be fruitful and what? And multiply. So now they're obeying him. It's good that they're finally obeying him. They're obeying him, and they began to do just that with the birth of their firstborn, who was a son. Now, we can just imagine, if you put yourself in their um, shoes they wore shoes, that Adam and Eve may well have been hoping that this child, this son, was going to be the fulfillment of God's promise of a Savior, you know, the coming Redeemer. They very likely rejoiced immensely, you know, after her pain of, you know, she really knew about the curse then, didn't she, after she gave birth to her firstborn son. But when they held that little baby in their arms, you know that they were rejoicing immensely because they were putting their hope in the fact that he was the one who would restore them and restore the earth to the perfection that they had known before and the one who would make it possible for them to return to their former paradise home over there in the garden. You know, now they lived east of Eden, but they had lived in that wonderful, beautiful, utopian uh, garden. But they'd been driven from that. Bible scholars um, believe that this was their thinking. You know, that they did believe that Cain was the promised seed of the woman because of the fact of, of their choice of a name for him. What did they name him? Cain. They named him Cain, and in Hebrew, that means, his name means acquired 
or gotten. It's very possible that they thought that they had acquired or gotten from the Lord the promised one who would crush the serpent's head. However, as we know, Adam and Eve were wrong, weren't they? He was not the acquired one. He was not the promised one. Um, They were correct, of course, in their belief that the Messiah would come and that he would be of the woman, that he would be of Eve, but they were wrong in two aspects. First of all, the boy child born to them had not been born in a biological sense by the seed of the woman. He had been conceived, how? By the seed of the man. Exactly. Adam was his physical father. He was the first, Cain was the first of the human race to be reproduced through the natural process of conception and pregnancy and birth. He was born through the natural process of reproduction. The promised redeemer, however, would be born without a human father. How how do we know this? We know this, again, from the Proto-Evangelium, because it was, God said he would truly be of the seed of the woman. And that's supernatural, isn't it? Do women have seed? No, men have seed. So right from the very beginning of Scripture, we are told that the coming one, the Messiah, the Savior, would have a supernatural birth. He would not have a human father. So they were wrong on that account. Secondly, the second aspect of their error was that Cain was definitely not the promised one. In fact, Cain wasn't even on the right side of the conflict between God and Satan. And it wouldn't take Adam and Eve very long before they would find out that that was true. You know, some of you have, well, a lot of you have had children, right? It doesn't take you very long when they're an infant to know that they're sinful little creatures. I mean, they're cute as buttons, but they are naughty little sinners, aren't they? (laughs) I mean, they they come into this world crying with their clenched fists because they're self-centered and they want their way. So it didn't take them very long to figure out that he was probably not the promised one. And it wouldn't take them long either to have their hearts broken as they learned that their dearly beloved firstborn son, can you imagine, you know, a mother's heart being broken like this? That their firstborn son was actually the firstborn seed of the serpent. Now, I want to point out something that I think is very significant in the Holy Scripture. Could it be that the Holy Spirit conveys the significance of the second birth, you know, the spiritual new birth, the fact that a man must be born again, um, through the accounts that we find in the book of Genesis, such as the account of Cain and Abel, and um, Ishmael and Isaac, and Esau and Jacob. In each case, the firstborn son was not the righteous son, was he? It was the secondborn son who was the righteous one. You see, I think the Holy Spirit is pointing out because Genesis lays the foundation for all the doctrines of the Scripture. I think right there the Holy Spirit was uh, pointing out the importance of the second birth, that she must be be born again to be of the seed of of the Savior, to be of the godly line. Except a man experienced by his faith in Jesus Christ the second birth. What did he say in John 3, 3? You cannot see the kingdom of God. It's all the secondborns, therefore, 
who are the righteous. And I hope and I pray and I trust that every one of you in here has experienced the second birth. You know, if you're born once, you die twice. You experience the second death. But if you're born twice, you will only die once. You will not experience that second death. If you're in doubt, if you do not know for sure that you have been born again, please, please see me afterward. And we can settle that issue right very quickly today. Well, Eve's second pregnancy brought forth yet another son, who she named what? No? Abel, you're jumping the gun. <laughs> she already did away with Abel. <laughs> Second son was named Abel. And the name Abel in the Hebrew, who might know? Trivia time. Who might know what the name Abel means? I didn't either, so don't feel bad. It means vanity. Seems like the names were kind of switched. <laughs> Seems like that should have been the name for Cain and, and Abel should have been... Uh, acquired or gotten, but his name means vanity, and at least 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, it is also, or it is translated as vanity, and it can also be translated as vapor. This may tell us that by the time Abel was born, and by the way, if you uh, hear that Cain and Abel were twins, that doesn't seem to be true according to the scripture. You know, it's, it says that she bare his brother, and it's in a separate passage, so it does not seem that they were twins. But by the time of Abel's birth, Adam and Eve had come to realize the impact of God's curse on this world. They would have witnessed by this time, as we said, the sin nature in their infant son, Cain. And they would have realized the pain of childbirth and the toil of getting food to eat, and they would have seen death occur in the animal world, right, by this time, and also the decay process at work in all of nature. So they would have seen firsthand that God had truly made the creation subject to vanity, just as it says in Romans 8.20. Well, as the two sons of, of Adam and Eve grew older, each one of them had his own interests and skills. Cain became a farmer. It says he was a tiller of the ground. That means he was a farmer. And what did Abel become? A keeper of the sheep. So he was the first of many shepherds found in the scripture. Who was a shepherd? Well, Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob and his 12 sons were all shepherds. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. First of many shepherds. Both of their professions were honorable ones, and both of them were involved in meeting the basic needs of their family, food and clothing. It's very pro probable that the sheep which were raised by Abel were to be used for clothes and for sacrifices, which we're going to discuss in a minute, but not for food. Now, why would those sheep not have been being raised for food? Well, because it was not until after the flood that man was authorized to use animals for food. Now, there was uh, much, obviously, that these two sons had learned from their earthly father, Adam. Adam had been given work to do, remember, even while he was still in the Paradise Garden. He had been given work to do. And, of course, he had to work the ground after he, he sinned. He had to work the ground in the sweat of his face in order to provide daily bread for his family. So he taught his sons how to work the ground, especially Cain took an interest in being the farmer of the land. And uh, Adam 
also would have shown his sons how to make clothing from the skins of animals. And where did Adam learn how, learn how to do that? Right, from God himself. Remember over in verse um, 21, when the Lord God took the coats of skins and clothed Adam and Eve. So the boys learned a lot from their father and also from their mother. But more significantly, the two sons had also been taught by their earthly father about their heavenly father. They knew, they grew up knowing that there was a God, that there is a God, and that sin greatly offended God, so much so that it drove their parents out of uh, his presence, away from his presence, out of that wonderful paradise home that they had had. And it kept them from him. I mean, they, they did not have that fellowship face-to-face with God like they had had in the garden. So they knew. The boys grew up knowing about God. However, Cain and Abel were also taught that in his great mercy, God would permit them to approach him under certain conditions. And one of those conditions was that they were to bring an offering unto the Lord. And it was on the occasion of one of these special times of bringing their offerings to God that the first recorded family conflict occurs and also, as you know, the first murder in human history. So let's look now at the conflict in um, verses 3 to 9. It says in verse 3, And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Which means, of course, angry. And why is thy countenance fallen? Why has your face fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou dost not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel, thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Let's stop right there. The conflict. It is quite possible that the specific place where Cain and Abel here brought their offerings was at the very entrance to the garden. I mean, if you think about all the places where Adam might have built an altar, it would make sense that he would have placed it there right before the garden where he had met God face to face, where God essentially dwelled with man. And remember what stood on both sides of the entrance to that garden? What? The two cherubim. Yeah, look at verse 324. There were two cherubim, one on each side of the, um, of the entrance to Eden, and they stood there with their flaming swords to prevent Adam and Eve from getting back into the garden. So it would have been very logical and very reasonable for Adam to have established an altar of worship and sacrifice at the very place where he had known God on a face-to-face basis. 
And I think that's very interesting because later on when the Israelites build a tabernacle and then a, a temple, where is it that they, where God dwells and where they bring their sacrifices and, and uh, meet, you know, could meet face to face with God? Right. You know, the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant and over that mercy seat were, the mercy seat was protected by two golden cherubim. I think that represents the cherubim standing at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Now, I can't be dogmatic about that, but I think if I had my place to select where they um, did worship God, I would believe that it would be right there at the gate to the Garden of Eden. So uh, Genesis 3 and 4, um, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, indicate to us that Cain and Abel had obviously been very uh, carefully instructed, obviously by their parents, that there was a place where God could be found. And there was a time. It says they're in the process of time. There was a specific time where he could be found. And there was also, the verse indicates, that there was a, an appointed means of approach, a very spe- uh, specified sacrifice that they were to bring. Now, neither son... If you think about this, neither son would have known anything about bringing God a sacrifice if it had not been something passed down to him by his parents, right? They wouldn't have known about that. I mean, if Adam and Eve had merely begun the practice of offering sacrifices on their own, you know, sort of as a a spontaneous expression of their thankful, grateful hearts and as an expression of worship, then we would have every right to wonder why God would not have been just as pleased with Cain's offering as he was with Abel's. And yet the scripture clearly informs us that God did not respond favorably to both offerings, did he? He had respect for Abel and for Abel's offering, but he had no respect for Cain, and he did not accept Cain's offering. So, therefore, it must be that God had given instructions, specific instructions, as to how to approach him with a proper sacrifice, as well as with a proper heart attitude. That's very important, isn't it? I mean, you know, if Cain had brought a sacrificed animal to the Lord and said, okay, this is the way you want it, here it is, Lord, you have to have the right attitude. You have to have faith in what that animal represents, which is the coming Redeemer. So you have to have both, proper sacrifice and the proper heart attitude. It tells us over over in uh, Hebrews 11.4. What is Hebrews 11 known for? Right, it's the Hall of Faith chapter in the Bible. And and, uh, uh, Abel is mentioned in that Hall of Faith. It tells us in verse 4 that it was by faith that Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts. You know, God accepted Abel's gift because he knew Abel's heart and that he was giving it in faith of the coming Redeemer, which it symbolized, and therefore Abel was counted as righteous. But Cain's offering was wrong Because Cain's heart was not right with God. His offering was wrong, but his heart was also wrong. He knew what God wanted. He had had the same instruction from his parents as Abel had had. 
And he had had it longer because he was older than Abel. And yet he deliberately attempted to approach God his own way. He did not offer the proper sacrifice because he really did not have faith in God's word. In what God said, what God commanded, and in what God promised. Now what was the sacrifice that God did accept? The more excellent sacrifice, as it says in Hebrews 11.4, which was offered in faith by Abel. What was it? It was, yeah, it was the firstlings of his flock. And what was Abel? A keeper of sheep. So what would the firstlings of his flock have been? Yes, it would have been a perfect, unblemished, unspotted lamb. And the lamb, to have been a sacrifice, would have had to, what? Die. He'd have to die. And what does that mean? That means its blood would have had to have been shed. Now, why would faith in a, uh, why would faith <laughs> didn't mean that? Why would Abel in faith have offered such a sacrifice? Well, the obvious answer is because his father Adam had taught him to approach God through the sacrifice of an innocent animal. Adam had learned this method from who? He had learned this method of uh, sin covering from God himself. Because when Adam and Eve had sinned, what had God done? Right before their eyes, he began to soak the ground for the first time with blood, with innocent blood, the blood of an innocent animal. Now, I believe that animal God sacrificed was even a lamb. And then he took the skins of that animal and he used them to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. What did their nakedness symbolize? Their sinfulness before God. And so he covered them. And in doing this, God was laying down three divine rules for acceptable atonement for sin. First of all, God taught man that an acceptable atonement for sin is something which he alone can provide. The animal and its blood and its life were all provided by who? By Adam and Eve? No, by God. They were not the result of the labor of man. You know, there was no way man could have created that animal and its life and its blood. The Lord God was the one who furnished the skins to cover the shameful sin of Adam and Eve. They did nothing. They did absolutely nothing. They're, well, they tried to do something, didn't they? What did they try to do to cover their sinful uh, shame? Right, they made those little sorry fig leaf aprons. But did they work? No, they, did, they didn't work at all because we know that when God approached them, what did they do? They still ran and tried to hide from him. So they didn't cover their shame at all. They were still shame, ashamed with those fig leaves of their own works. All right, secondly, God taught man that an acceptable atonement for sin must be by the death of an innocent substitute. The animal which was slain by God in the garden had not sinned, had it? It was completely innocent. It had not participated in Adam and Eve's sin. God had declared to Adam, remember, that on the day he would eat, he would surely die, eat the forbidden fruit. Now, if the sun had sunk beyond the horizon on the very day of Adam's fall into sin, if that sun had gone, that sun had sunk, you can tell I haven't talked in four months, <laughs> if the day had ended 
before, without God's provision of the innocent sin substitute, then both Adam and Eve would surely have died physically that very day. And that is why God instantly, the very same day they sinned, why he instantly came to them with his message not only of promised redemption, but also why he came to them with his substitutionary lamb. Because then they were covered, their sin was covered, and they did not have to die. Third, the atonement for man's sin must be by way of the shedding of blood. It's something only God can provide. It's, uh, it must be by the death of an innocent substitute. And what's the third thing? It must be by way of the shedding of blood. What does it say in Hebrews 9.22? Without shedding of blood is no remission, no forgiveness. By way of his action of killing the innocent lamb and clothing Adam and Eve with its skin, God was very graphically teaching Adam and Eve that sin causes what? What's the wages of sin? Death. Sin causes death. Either it would cause their deaths or it had to cause the death of an innocent substitute, which had to shed its blood in order to clothe their shame and guilt. He was also teaching them the truth that they were to pass on to their children, that man could approach him only if his or her shame and guilt of sin were covered by the sacrificial death of an innocent sin substitute. Now, of course, I hope you know that all the innocent animals that were offered as sacrifices throughout the Old Testament, beginning with the very first one that God himself killed in order to cover Adam and Eve, and then going on to the one that Abel offered here in our um, text. And who else offered sacrifices? Well, Abraham, you know, offered a ram instead of Isaac. Unfortunately, that was never God's intention to offer Isaac, but he had to offer a ram. And then all remember all the lambs that had to be sacrificed on um, the time of the Passover, the Exodus Passover. Yeah, again, there's the story of the firstborn. If, if the door of their house was covered with the, sh- the shed blood of a, a lamb substitute, God would pass over. the. I mean, the angel of death would pass over the house, right? If the heart, represented by the door, was not covered by the blood of the lamb, who died? The firstborns died. Interesting how that picture is given to us throughout the scripture. But all of these animals that were offered were, um, were pictures in type. They were prophetic pictures. You know, T-Y-P-E means a foreshadowing or a picture of something else. They were pictures or types of who? The true Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised seed of the woman and the Savior of the world. He would, there's a picture of putting the blood on the doors, he would once and for all time die and shed his innocent blood for the redemption of all those who would, by faith, believe him to be the true Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, as it says in John 1.29. Who said that, by the way? Behold, the Lamb of God which cometh to take... Right, John the Baptist. Now, Abel, you see, had faith in this coming Redeemer. Abel realized 
his position before God as a guilty, lost, helpless sinner who needed the atoning sacrifice of an innocent sin substitute. Although Abel, of course, where he's coming from in, um, in human history, without the full revelation of the scripture, I mean, think of Abel. He didn't have one page of scripture. So he didn't really fully understand all that we know now because we do have the full revelation of the scripture. Yet his sacrifice, because he obeyed God, did what God said, and he did it with the right heart attitude, his sacrifice actually looked ahead to Calvary and the shed blood of the innocent lamb who would die there in his place, in Abel's place. So he believed God in faith. And his faith was demonstrated by the type of offering that he brought to God. And therefore the Lord had respect unto Abel and unto his offering. But such was not the case with Cain. Cain did not approach the Lord God through the way which had been taught to him by his parents. So what does this tell us as parents? I mean, you know, sometimes we can load ourselves down with a lot of guilt when, we, when one of our children goes astray. But, I mean, you can, have, you can teach your children. They can be in the same environment, the same home, the same parents, the same teaching, the same moral standards, the same upbringing, the same church, same everything, and yet one might, because why is that? Man has free choice, and one of them might go astray. So, you know, you need to pray and pray and pray, but you don't need to load yourself down with that burden of guilt. We see it happen with the first two human beings ever born to this earth. Cain did not, it was his own choice, he did not approach the Lord God through the way that had been taught to him by his parents. And his parents were godly. Yes, they had sinned, but they had repented and they had been covered, you know, by the Lord and they were on their way to heaven. Cain did not, in faith of the coming Redeemer, approach God through the blood sacrifice of an innocent lamb. Like so many today, Cain spurned the idea of salvation based on blood. You know, they even take the word blood out of a lot of the hymn books, don't they? They don't like to think about blood. Uh, he probably thought, Cain probably thought, that that was, you know, such an approach was disgusting and that it was offensive to his intellect and to his uh, pride. So what did he do? He devised his own way. Isn't this what men do? They don't like God's way, and so they come up with their own way. He devised a way which seemeth right unto him. It seemed right to him. It seemed far more sensible and far more civilized than God's way. So he brought to God the fruit of his own labor. He brought something, you know, that he could stand back and look at and say, oh, surely God's going to be pleased with me. I mean, look at all the effort and work I went to to produce this beautiful basket of fruit. I did this for him. I spent my time, my energy, my talents, my money on this. I've given to the church. You know, I've been in the choir for years. I've, I've taught Sunday school class. Look at God. I know God's going to be pleased with me. He's going to be so happy to even have me as his child. Cain, therefore, established the world's first false religion. Remember now, Cain was not an atheist, was he? He definitely, I mean, he even has a conversation here with God. He definitely believed in God. 
There's a lot of unsaved people who believe in God. They know that there's a God. Or, you know, Cain would never have gone to worship God in the first place if he hadn't believed in God. And yet, in attempting to approach God his own way, he produced a false religion. He found his own substitute for the word of God, for the work of Christ, and for the witness of the Holy Spirit. Instead of obeying what God had said to do, he invented his own human scheme for salvation. And that's what all religions do, other than Christianity. All religions have invented their own way for man to get to God. The philosophy upon which Cain's religion was based is the same as all other religions besides Christianity, and that is that salvation can be earned. You know, salvation by works. It could be purchased by one's own efforts. And therefore, Cain brought to God the fruit of his own labor. You know, there are only really two ways to approach God. There is a way which does not work, which is the way of one's own efforts. And there is a way which does work. And that is the way of God's work. You know, uh... Man's efforts or there's God's effort. Man's effort doesn't work. That does, I mean, you can work and work and work your whole life long, and you'll never work your way to God. You see, either man tries to provide for himself or he accepts in faith what God has already provided. I'll tell you what's the easier way <laughs> to work yourself to death and get nowhere or to just accept in faith what God has already done for you. I mean, that's by far the easier way, but that offends man's pride. You know, man likes to do something so he can boast. So either man tries to earn his own way to heaven, which he can never do, or he trusts the only one who can get him to heaven, and that one is, of course, the one who came from heaven in order to do all the work uh, for man when he died on the cross and finished the redemption work God had sent him to accomplish. So there is either the way of the cross... Or there is the way of Cain. If you turn to Jude 11, you might want to look at that while I'm talking. It actually talks about the way of Cain. There are all the many and there are all the uh, varied religions of works, salvation by works, the religions, uh, the religions of fig leaves, we could call them, or the uh, offerings of Cain, we could also call them. And there is, on the other hand, salvation by grace. And salvation by grace is a very humiliating message to the pride of man. That's why you will find most people do not like the message of salvation by grace. It humiliates their big egos and their pride. Yet until a person is willing to admit that he cannot do anything at all to earn his own salvation, but m must totally rely on the grace of God, he cannot be saved. What's it say in Ephesians 2, 8, 9? For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God doesn't want a whole lot of people in heaven walking around boasting about how they got there. Well, in some way now, which the scripture does not record, whoo, I'm in trouble, wow. Um, God made it known that he did accept Abel's sacrifice. I'm going to skip this. Um, possibly he had fire come down from heaven and consume Abel's sacrifice. But whatever the case might have been, Abel knew that his offering, that he and his offering had been accepted by God. And so he was able to leave, Abel was able, <laughs> 
Abel was able to leave the altar rejoicing, knowing that, you know, he had fellowship with God and that he experienced forgiveness for his sins and so forth. In contrast, Cain left the scene, how does it say? Very wroth. In other words, the original Hebrew tells us that he was boiling with anger. His anger was such that it even affected his face. It says his countenance showed his anger. Uh, He was angry, why? Because God had not accepted his sacrifice, but he had accepted Abel's sacrifice. So this made him not only mad with uh, God, but also angry with his brother Abel. Now the only one, however, who Cain really should have been wroth with was who? Absolutely, himself. He knew, just as well as Abel, that the way to approach God was through a blood sacrifice, but he purposely, willfully chose to reject that way. You know, if Cain had merely been willing to first present an animal sacrifice, you know, maybe he was too proud to ask. I just thought of this. Maybe he was too proud to ask Abel for one of his sheep. You know, oh, I don't want to use his what he has done. I'm going to use my own thing. That makes sense. But uh, if he had just been willing to first do it God's way and present the animal sacrifice, which would thereby be his way of confessing his own sinfulness and admitting that his sin did require death and that he was thankful for God, to God for allowing a sin substitute to die in his place, then you see, if he first had himself right with God, if he first showed, had faith in God, then he could pre- have presented all of the beautiful fruit that he had wanted to you know, from his own effort. Isn't that the way it works? First, the root is faith. And then comes the fruit. The root first and then the fruit. Once we're truly right with God, we have faith in God and the coming Redeemer, the Redeemer who already came, then he wants our fruit. The more fruit, the better. So this is what he should have done. But because Cain attempted to come to God without the blood offering, God had to reject both him and everything else that he tried to offer. And this, again, is a problem with so many religious people today. They want to be accepted by God on the basis of their fruit offerings. However, God has to reject both them and their uh, works. Their works without faith are as filthy rags. Because where there is no blood, there is no Christ. And without Christ, there is only a show of Christianity, no matter how ornate and how beautiful and aesthetic the worship service may be. Without Christ and and the shed blood and his death, there is just a show. It's churchianity. It's not true Christianity. On the other hand, if a person comes to God through faith in Christ and his shed blood and death on Calvary's cross, then he can present all of the extra fruit that he ever could possibly present. And God will be pleased. Now, in Genesis um, verse 4, verses 6 and 7, we find another wonderful situation which displays the love and the compassion and the patience of God. Even though God could not accept Cain's sacrifice, yet he still had compassion for Cain, and he longed to see Cain repent and get himself right with his maker. So, in other words, he was willing to forgive Cain for his willful willful disobedience and for his anger against him and for his anger against his brother and for his self-pity and for his bitterness and, and for his display of unbelief in the coming Messiah. You see, God did not want Cain to perish because it's not his will that any man should perish, is it? 
He doesn't want to see people go into eternity without him. So God questioned Cain in order to stir him, not because God needed to know the answers, but he wanted to stir Cain to think about his willful refusal to approach God the way that God himself had prescribed. So he tried to lead Cain the way of faith by asking him essentially these three questions. Number one, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And why don't you just do what is right so that you can be accepted? It's very easy. Why don't you just do it, Cain? You see, the Lord is very, very gracious with us, isn't he? To provide us with additional opportunities to obey him. He is indeed the God of the second chance. He's giving Cain a second chance. Some of you might be here this morning because God is giving you a second chance. Maybe as a child or in your teen years or your early adult years, you rejected God. You drew away from him, but maybe today he's brought you back here to give you a second chance. And if that's true, you know, do what he says, please. So the Lord warned Cain that if he did... Uh, this is in verse 7. He warned him that if he did not do well, in other words, if he didn't repent and approach God the way he was supposed to, then sin was lying at his door. And the Hebrew words there of verse 7 give a very uh, graphic picture of sin, kind of like a wild beast just waiting there uh, to, to pounce on Cain, you know, maybe waiting at the the entrance of his home. Really, the door speaks of like his heart, just waiting to pounce on him. And that reminds me of 1 Peter 5, 8, where we're told to be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Same kind of illustration. Who's the inventor of sin? Satan. So they're both seen as a wild beast, you know, quietly waiting to just overpower someone. Did you know that this is the very first time the word sin appears in the scripture? Right here in Hebrew, uh, Hebrews, Genesis 4, verse 7. And it's the word uh, chattah, C-H-A-T-T-A-H, which literally means to miss the mark. As in an archer, you know, Cain totally missed the mark in his approach to God. That's what the word sin means, missing the mark. For all have sinned and what? Come short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. So God was talking to Cain as to a willful child. And that's exactly what he was, stubborn, willful child. He was, God was attempting to show him the serious danger of what was occurring in his mind and heart. God knew that if Cain did not repent at this point in his life, he would be overtaken by sin. It would have him. It would devour him. His anger and his bitterness and his pride and his grudges and his sibling rivalry and his envy would devour him. Is that what sin can do to us? Absolutely, if we allow it. We notice in response to God's three questions, what does Cain say? He says nothing. He remains absolutely silent. Apparently, obviously, from what he does next, he chose not to listen. He chose to continue in his rebellion and in his sin of false worship. He chose to remain angry with God and to harbor bitterness toward God's rejection of his offering, his self-righteous offering. And he uh, chose to continue to also resent righteous Abel. 
He proudly determined that he would reject a blood sacrifice as the only approach to God. And therefore, because he refused to master sin, he became mastered by it. Because he would not allow himself to be mastered by God, he became enslaved by the devil. Cain became the first liar and the first human murderer in human history. You know, Adam and Eve had tried to shift the blame for their sin on each other, remember? <laughs> um, Eve said, oh, no, Adam said, it's that woman you gave me. And what did she say? Well, it was the serpent who beguiled me. They tried to blame shift, but they didn't lie in the face of God. And that's exactly what Cain does. Cain was the first spiritual child of the devil. You know, according to the Lord Jesus himself, Satan was a murderer and a liar from the very beginning, John 8, 44. By lying to Eve, Satan brought about death to the entire world. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And now his spiritual child, Cain, was doing the very same thing. Cain seems to have enticed his brother Abel with some kind of a deception to go out into a field where there would be no witnesses in order to murder him. Perhaps, this is just my thought, but perhaps Cain fictitiously told Abel uh, that he, oh, I, I'm sorry, I've done the wrong thing, I, my, I know I was wrong, and so let's go out in the field and let me pick out one of your little lambs to offer to God. Maybe he lied to Abel. We do know they went out to a, into a field where their parents weren't around, and that is where he did murder him. But whether Cain lied to his brother or not in order to get him out into that field, we do know one thing for certain. We know Cain lied to himself in thinking that he could murder his own brother and get away with it. And furthermore, he lied to God in order to attempt to cover up what he did. In response to God's question, where is Abel, thy brother, what did Cain say? He said, I don't know. You know, I know not. That is a lie. He is of his father, the devil, because he also was a liar and a murderer. And then he followed that blatant lie with brash disrespect for God when he said to God, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, you can just hear the sarcasm in that. And this, by the way, in case you like to know about firsts, this is the first human question in the scripture. And I thought, wow, isn't that an appropriate one? The first human question in all the Bible is, am I my brother's keeper? Think about that. Isn't that what men have been asking all along? Am I my brother's keeper? And asking it sarcastically. It took Jesus to come along and say, yes, you are your brother's keeper. So anyway, God's words of warning to Cain came to pass. Sin had desired to have him and rule over him, and it did. Cain's willful disobedience to God's prescribed way of worship and approach had brought him anger when he and his sacrifice were rejected. But his anger was not only toward God, it was toward his own brother. And he then ignored and rejected God's warning and God's attempt to get him to repent, and he allowed his anger and his bitterness to increase, increase, increase. Is this what sin does? Does sin snowball? Yes, it does. 
His anger increased until it got to the, it rose to murder. He had to kill his brother. So he murdered his own brother. Now, you know, it wasn't just some stranger. It was his own flesh and blood brother. And the word brother is mentioned in this text six times. You know, God wants us to know that this was his brother that he murdered. In addition, Cain did this after he had been to the altar to worship God. And then when his horrible act was accomplished, he purposely lied to God, right to God's face, and he answered him with this great disrespect and sarcasm. So we see, you know, how it gets worse and worse until he's just calloused. There's not a tinge of repentance or even regret, which is evidenced in Cain. Rather, he seems to have taken the murder of his own brother rather lightly and, you know, tried to lie his way out of it. In Genesis 4.10, then God said to Cain, What hast thou done? God knows what he did, and he tells him in the very next sentence. He says, um, that The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. You know, it's very foolish for man to think that he can hide anything at all from God. God can see everything. He not only witnessed the sin of Cain, but he heard the cry of Abel for justice. You know, Abel was a prophet. We're told that in Luke 11 that Abel was a prophet, and yet it's interesting because we never find one word that Abel said, but he was a prophet. So I think that Abel told his brother what he was supposed to do. I think he prophesied to his brother of, of, the, of the, the lamb and how it was important for him to shed the blood of an innocent sin substitute. And he's also a prophet because the scripture tells us that he being dead yet speaketh. His blood still cries out from the ground uh, for justice against all those like Cain who are children of Satan and do evil against their own brothers here on earth. So Abel was indeed a, a prophet. Isn't it interesting that Cain, whose man-made religion was too dignified to slay a lamb? You know, he didn't like to talk about a bloody faith, a bloody religion. And yet, how quickly did he plunge a knife into the body of his own brother? Isn't that a paradox? Isn't that ironic? And yet, is not this the way of all false religions? Are they not characterized by force and persecution and the martyrdom of those who stand like Abel for the truth of God and for his righteousness? Before Cain's false religion was even a day old, it had succeeded in producing the very first martyr. Well, let's look very quickly. I can't believe the time at the curse. I don't know. Most of that you're going to have to read, and then I just want to finish up with that, um, the gravy, okay? If you can stay a few minutes and let me talk about the types that we have here, the types of Jesus in Genesis. The curse... I think I'll let you read it in your notes. I'm just going to read about it, okay, in verses 10 to 15. It says, And he said, this is God, And what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now, here's the curse on Cain, And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. In other words, he's saying, you know, because you stained the ground with your brother's blood, the ground is not going to yield anything to you anymore. 
You know, Adam had to work hard to produce a harvest, but Cain could work his tail off and would never produce anything. All would be vanity with him. He would never produce anything, any fruit, again, to offer to God, any fruit of his own labor. Not only would he not produce any fruit on this earth, but he would send nothing ahead in heaven. He would lay up no earthly, uh, no heavenly treasures either. His life truly would be vanity, which is what his name means. And God says that he would be a fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be on earth. He would never uh, find security. He would never find satisfaction. He would never have peace. He would never be able to settle down in one place. He would be a wanderer over the earth. And what does Cain say? Now, does Cain show uh, repentance in this next statement? Does he say here, my guilt is greater than I can bear? No. The only thing he's concerned about is his punishment. You know, he's really complaining against God and saying, you're too strict, you're too harsh. You know, people say, God's too harsh with sin. Look at the Old Testament. He's a mean God. Why would he ever send people to hell? But really, uh, God was merciful to Cain. He could have killed him right there on the spot, just as he could with Adam and Eve. It was his mercy. You know, we should never ask for what we deserve. <laughs> should, well, what do we deserve? We deserve death and hell. We deserve to be eternally separated from God because we're sinners by nature. We're born sinners. But he complains here against God like so many people do. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Well, poor you, Cain. You just killed your own brother. You lied in the face of God, and you're complaining about your punishment just because you can't you know, produce any more fruit and you have to wander around. And then he says, Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. You know, he's having a big-time pity party here for himself. And so again, we see the Lord's mercy. Verse 15, The Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark, the Hebrew word actually means a sign upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And then verse 16, and Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. The word Nod, many of you I think on Tuesday mornings dwell in the land of Nod, <laughs> especially in the night study. But the word nod does not mean what you think. It means wandering. In other words, again, he would never, he was like the first nomad, you know. He just kept wandering all over the earth. Um, we don't know what the sign that God put on him was. I mean, we could speculate all day long until we go to be with the Lord. We can speculate about what that sign was. We're not told. I have no idea. But whatever the mark or the sign on Cain was, everybody knew about it. You see, by this time, remember, Cain and Abel, if you see the little pictures, like I even had one there, they were not little boys. They're grown men. By this time, Cain, um, Adam and Eve had other children. Those children probably even had children because they were very, very fruitful in those days. And so there were more people than you can imagine on the earth already. So he's worried about everyone else taking vengeance on him for having murdered his own brother. But whatever this sign was, we don't know, but it protected him because God said whoever would touch Cain 
would have a sevenfold curse on them compared to what Cain had had. Now, let's talk about the types, all right? If you have to go, go ahead and make sure you get your notes. But um, I do want to talk about the fact that Abel is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Abel, remember, um, was the first shepherd in the Bible. He is the first keeper of sheep. And what does this picture? It pictures the one who would come and declare himself to be the good shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Both Abel and Jesus were innocent. They were innocent and yet they were still murdered. Now, of course, Jesus was sinless and Abel was not. But they were both innocent for what they were murdered for. Um, murder did not silence Abel, did it? Doesn't it say that though dead, he yet speaketh? Just as murder did not silence the Lord Jesus. The blood of Abel cries out just as the blood of the Lord Jesus cries out. Um, now, there is another thing I want to point out before I get into the type of Cain, who Cain pictures or typifies. But think about this. This is really fascinating. First of all, the first lamb that we see, other than the one God offered, is the one that Abel offered. And he offered that lamb for who? For just himself, all right? So that was one lamb offered for the sins of one person. Then we go to the Exodus Passover, and we have there one lamb which is sacrificed for the sins of an entire family. All right. Then we have the Day of Atonement, which was when one day out of the year, one lamb was offered by the high priest of Israel when he went into the uh, Holy of Holies, and he would offer one lamb for a whole nation, for the whole nation of Israel. And then on Calvary's cross, one lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, offered himself for the sins of the entire world. So you see the progression? One lamb for one person, one lamb for one family, one lamb for one nation, one lamb for the entire world. That gives me goosebumps. It's so wonderful. Well, just as Abel serves as a prophetic type of uh, the Lord Jesus, and there's more involved in that, but I don't have time to tell you about all the ways he pictures Christ, Cain, his brother, gives us a picture in type of the blood brethren of Christ. Now, who were the blood brethren of Christ? Come on, you know, you know. The Jews, the Jewish people, or the nation of Israel. He is a picture, a prophetic picture of Israel, the Jewish people. We are told back in verse 2 that we were told that he was a tiller of the land, of the ground. And the ground immediately connects him with the land. You know, in, in the scripture, the land always refers to the nation of Israel. It's the, the uh, holy land. It's the promised land. All directions in the Bible are given in relationship to the land of Israel. Um, Cain refused the required lamb which was the offering for sin, which God's grace provided. Likewise, the Jews refused the Lamb of God, which was the offering for sin, which God's grace had provided. Cain, what did he do? He brought an offering of his own choice, of his own righteous works. 
just as the Jews sought to establish their own righteousness, as it tells us in Romans 10.3. Cain's offering was rejected by God, just as God had no respect for the works of the Jews, according to Acts 13.39. Cain, being the firstborn son, had the God-given privilege to rule over his brother. You know, he received all the blessings and benefits of being the firstborn. If Israel had obeyed God in his commandments and in his statutes, then she would have been the head of the nations, Deuteronomy 28:13. However, just as Cain forfeited his privilege of the firstborn son, so too did the Jewish people forfeit their place and their privilege, Isaiah 9:14. Envious of Abel... Cain killed his own brother, and God told him that Abel's blood cries out for vengeance. The brethren of Christ crucified him, and his blood is now judicially resting on them. Remember, they even said that, let his blood be on us, Matthew 27, 25. Because, of his, because he shed his brother's blood, God's curse fell on Cain. Because of the crucifixion of their own Messiah, God's curse has fallen on Israel, Jeremiah 24, 9. Part of Cain's punishment involved the ground becoming barren to him. Part of the curse of God on Israel was the barrenness of the land. She didn't even live on the land for 2,000 years. That's called the desolation of Israel, Leviticus 26, verses 34 to 35. Cain was to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Well, what has marked the Jews more than anything? They have been wanderers and fugitives in every land and nation of the entire earth. Where was their home? For many, many years in the land of Nod, the land of wandering. Cain said that his punishment was greater than he could bear. According to Zechariah 12.10, Israel will yet cry out in the great tribulation that her punishment is greater than she can bear. Because of his sin, Cain was driven out of his homeland. Because of their sin in crucifying their Messiah, the Jews have been driven or were driven from Palestine in 70 A.D. A mark, a mysterious mark or sign of identification was divinely placed on Cain so that he would not be eliminated by his enemies. The Jews have also some kind of a mysterious sign, something about them that has preserved them for all of these hundreds and thousands of years from extinction by their enemies. God declared that he would pay a sevenfold Vengeance on anyone who slew Cain. And what is God's very special curse about any who harm his beloved Israel? That they too would have a very special curse placed on them. And he's kept to that. Anyone who has touched his people has, has been um, greatly cursed and punished by God. You see, only one who knows the end from the beginning could have declared so accurately and so precisely that which would come to pass many thousands of years later, as God has done. And you see, um, 
whether it be direct prophecy or prof uh, prophecy by types or pictures. Every, one, every prophecy that we find throughout the book of Genesis and throughout the whole rest of the Bible is just uh, God's divine autograph on every page. You know, he truly had to have been the one who authored this wonderful book. Well, thank you for your patience. Uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we know that the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come, as Colossians 2.17 says. But the body which causes those shadows is Christ. And now with the full light of the New Testament, we can so easily discern Christ in all of the many prophecies and in all the shadows and in all the types and figures of prophecy that we find in the shadow. And this does indeed increase our faith and cause us to know that truly you are the author of this precious book that we hold in our hands. Father, thank you for the lesson we have had this morning. I pray that we will apply all the principles that we've learned about it, about how not to let sin uh, take hold of us and master over us and to, how to confess unto you quickly and repent and come so that we are in fellowship with you um, and we don't let sin to, to take over us. But we also want to learn most of all that we need to approach you in the way that you have established. And I pray, Lord, if there is one here who has not done that, who has perhaps despised the cross in the way of a sin substitute and, and just the way of redemption you have established through your divine manuscript, the Bible, I pray that she would see today the error of her way, that she is going in the way of Cain, which is a way that leadeth unto death and destruction, that she would repent and that she would cry out to Jesus to save her today, for we will give you all the praise and the glory for that. And now go with these women, bring them back safely next week, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.